I think, that uh, maybe I missed you there. Sean does a great job. I, we certainly love Ashton, and uh, she's wonderful, but it's so great to have him. Sean is a member at Grace Community Church and helps lead worship there with Frank uh, Hamilton, but um, has been so gracious to come help us now. Second time, and if I remember your name, maybe you'll come a third in a time of need. Um, at this time, the children ages 3 to 7 uh, can be dismissed for Children's Church. Let's get that squared away. Um, we're talking about, we're in Genesis 17, one thing about, so great about the Bible and preaching through the Bible is that it forces you to say things that you, you otherwise might not say, um, and we mentioned last week, uh, the topic of circumcision, we'll talk about that here shortly, uh, I'm not sure we all woke up this morning and we're like, man, I can't wait to talk about that, I'm so fired up, it's so relevant to my faith, um, and yeah, it's in God's Word, and so it has something for us, um. And you might even ask why we're talking about Abraham. Um, I I grew up thinking the Bible was sort of a collection of stories. There's this Adam and Eve story. There's this story about Abraham. There's Noah. There's uh, we got we got uh, Moses and we get David and we get Paul and these things in the New Testament. It's just sort of a collection of stories, uh, and they're sort of principle based and they're kind of helpful and they're kind of collected together in one big work. You know, it's like a Aesop's fable type of thing. I, I grew up thinking the Bible was like that. And so I, I would see, I could sort of learn a lesson and learn about the character of Abraham or the character of David. But I didn't understand that there was this theme running through the whole thing. There was this continuity. And the reason that we, we study this, Abraham, or we study any of the patriarchs, or we study David, or anything in the Old Testament, is to really tease out and understand this theme that is there, namely the nature and character of God by whom we are to respond to by faith. And that's what Abraham gets us to. Because we are all people, uh, if you live in this world, you're searching for meaning. All of us need some reason to get out of bed in the morning, reason to go to work, the reason to engage in relationships and do hard things, something to motivate us when life is difficult. We need meaning, we need purpose, and the Bible's not just about little principles to give us nuggets, it's actually showing us the whole trajectory of life that we live under God's hand, under His rule, and how we respond to it. And so in that way, in that framework, Abraham really is going to do what the whole Bible is going to do. It's going to teach us about who God is. And he's going to give us, in many ways, uh, anecdotes uh, of what it looks like to live by faith in him. Particularly, he's going to teach us about this idea of covenant, about relationship. What is God like? If God were to do relationship with us after the fall, how would he do it? Is he like our, one of our fathers, that our father that might be a good dad? Or is he like uh, maybe our father that wasn't a great earthly father? Or is he like my uh, quick-tempered uncle? Um, is he kind of soft and a, kind of a pushover guy? What's he like? And, and what is he like? How is that going to relate to us? It's through covenant. It's through relationship. It's a way he's going to bind and bond himself to us. And so it's important that we talk about it. Let me open us in prayer and then we'll read our scripture for today. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that it, uh, it surprises us. Uh, it, it challenges us. We have to wrestle with things we'd just rather not wrestle with. Uh, we like the good, easy stuff, but the hard stuff or the weird stuff we'd rather leave alone. And yet, we believe you've purposed it for our good and for your glory. So we ask that you would use it today to bless us um, as we come to this time of preaching and time of hearing, 
We're mindful of their needs in our congregation. I know there are many that are hurting. I know many that have heard news about difficulty. Um, those that have heard news about cancer and struggle. And those that have heard news about jobs and changes and moving. And God, we know those things are ever-present with us. And so we don't <clears throat> neglect those things that are very near. And so, Lord, we lift those things to you. But we do pray as we hear from you that the truth of who you are and the truth of uh, what you've made us for would be relevant in the, in the nitty-gritty and uh, the difficult and the tender and the soft places and the vulnerable places of our heart. So, Lord, we ask that you would do much now in this time and for your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, let's, uh, let's stand, if you're, if you're uh, willing and able, to hear God's word. We're not going to read the whole chapter of 17. We read most of it last week. Um, so God is uh, 15 and 17, uh, uh, forging this covenant with Abraham. And we're going to read uh, verse 9 here, um, 9 to 14. And then we're going to read 22 to 27. It says this. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generation. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation, whether born in your house or bought with your money from one another, any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your home or house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. Then verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his, uh, and his uh, son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of the house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Anybody uncomfortable yet? Did we have to say the same phrase over and over? I guess we did, right? Hebrew likes repetition. Some of you, uh, maybe as a kid, made packs with your buddy. I remember a buddy of mine, I was six, and he was moving to Tennessee, and uh, we made a pack in the back that we were going to be friends forever. Like, we're not going to forget these days. We used to ride bikes in this little, little gutter behind uh, our, uh, our house together, and we were going to make bonds together. Uh, we made a pact. Uh, sometimes you'll see in movies, little boys will, uh, will spit in their hands, right? Like, and they'll shake on it, you know. We're going to do this, right? We're committed. There's something that they're, they're going to uh, forge together. Uh, they're going to solidify this pact by the spit together in the handshake. It means this is going to happen. This is as good as done, right? Uh, some cultures it's done with blood. Maybe there's a cutting of the hand, right? You seal the deal with blood. You heard this, right? And they'll cut the hand. They'll shake upon the blood, right? And it, it means this is certain. This is absolute. I've given you my word. I've given you the promise, but now I'm going to give you something that's going to, it's going to ratify it. It's going to seal it. 
it's going to verify that I'm serious that this is going to happen. You may have seen that movie, uh, My Best Friend's Wedding. Anyone seen this movie quite a, quite a few years ago? Yes, I have seen it. Uh, chick flick and all. Um, and uh, Julia Roberts is there, and uh, she has a, a, a friend as a boy, as a kid, and uh, they make this pact, you know. If, uh, if we're not married by the ripe old age of 28, you know, then we're going to get married to each other. You know, if you don't find anyone, I don't find anyone. And they, they prick the finger and they make this little blood covenant, this little pact. This, this doesn't happen. If you know the story, her, uh, this, this best friend is getting married and it's four days before they turn 28. Four days. And so she's, she's freaking out. What is she going to do? So the whole story is her coming together. You know the story, some of you. If you haven't, you know, watch it if you, if you choose. Uh, she comes together to say, you know, we're 28. We've got to keep our bond. We made a pact together, right? We forged it together. Uh, in chapter 15 of Genesis, uh, God cuts a covenant. He's making a bond with Abraham. Despite the fallenness of man, I'm going to pledge to you, to bond to you, my commitment and fidelity to you. And God takes the divine initiative to walk through these animal pieces, signifying that he will keep the whole covenant. He will do what he said he will do, despite the sinfulness of man. We'll get to chapter 17, where we were last week and where we are today. God gives the promise again. Isn't he gracious to do that? He reassures them of the promise. Some time has lapsed and he says, I am going to be a God to you and you will be my people. This will happen. And he's going to give them this sign. The sign of the covenant to ratify this promise. To seal it as authoritative. He's going to give them this symbol, this sign of circumcision. And so... As awkward as it may be, we're going to talk about circumcision and what it means and, and how it r- might relate to us today, maybe surprise us in a little bit. So, we're going to talk about the way the Lord has solidified His commitment to relationship with His people. Alright, first thing, what does is, uh, what is circumcision signify? What's it a symbol of? Um, what does it symbolize First, it symbolizes that God is the giver of life. God is the giver of life. Uh, it is a cutting of the piece of the male uh, reproductive organ, if you did not know what circumcision was. What's the promise to Abraham? You are going to be a father of the multitude. You are going to, nations and people are going to come. It's going to be through your seed, sometimes seeds plural, like all of us, Sometimes seed is singular, like there might be one specific seed that God might accomplish his purpose. A little foreshadowing in Genesis to Jesus. But it's going to be through a seed, which means there's going to have to be reproduction. And Abraham is 99 years old. It's not happened. So much so that when he was uh, the ripe old age of uh, 86, he said, this isn't working. (laughs) So him and his wife, Sarah, said, uh, Hagar, our, our servant, our maid, you guys get together and let's, you have a child and uh, then the seed, the promise will happen. It's a great you know, drama of our day, right? It's, it's a perfect uh, uh, you know, daytime soap opera here. So Abram takes matters in his own hand. He is going to produce the seed. He is going to make it happen. He is going to fulfill the promise. 
And God says, no. The promise is going to come in covenant faithfulness with Sarah, or Sarai at the time, and through her you were going to have a son and you were going to become a multitude of nations. And so the cutting, the sign, is a symbol in the body. It says that in verse 13. You're going to have a covenant in your flesh, literally in your body, a reminder that I am going to do this. The covenant in 17, the verse starts with God says, I am uh, God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. It's the name of, I am the powerful one. And I'm going to make a covenant. Abraham uh, was impotent. Think about that language and what that might mean in the context of sexuality. He was impotent, unable to accomplish the promises. And God says, that's because I'm El Shaddai. I am, the pro- I am the powerful one that life, according to the promise, will come through me and through my plan and through my purposes. So the first thing, it's a reminder in the body for Abraham, uh, for all the males born on the eighth day, that God is the giver of life. Some of you might say, what about the females? We'll address that briefly. In that, in that context, males provided the covering. So when we're talking about male, male is covering for female. Think about Adam and Eve right in the garden. Um, Eve is the one that takes the fruit. Uh, certainly Adam is sinful both in his silence and then in his participation. But we see Eve is the active one, but throughout Scripture, who is said to have sinned? It's Adam, right? We're all sinners in Adam because Adam serves as the covenant head, the covering. So the ladies here were not exempt here. They were were covered by the covenant sign in the males of that time, if you were wondering how that worked. So the first thing is it shows a sign, it symbolizes that God is the giver of life. Not the primary symbol, though. The primary symbol is that this cutting away of flesh shows that God's people are to be set apart from the world. As the piece of flesh is cut off, literally, God's people are to be cut off from the world. They are to be holy set aside, set apart from the way of the world. Israel's among the nations, among the pagans, but they are to be set aside. They are to be distinct in their relationship to God. That may sound weird to us. It probably does. It wasn't weird in that day. Um, The Hittites. You read about them in the Old Testament, among the other ites. Um, They practiced circumcision. But it was when you were 13. It was... uh, Boys were moving from boyhood to manhood. It was sort of a rite of passage at puberty. You hit 13, they were circumcised. It was a, a transition from life, from uh, boyhood to manhood. And then um, other, others in culture did it before marriage. They would be circumcised before they got married. It was a sign, again, of transition from boyhood to manhood, or singleness to married life. Um, life was changing. It seems a little... <laughs> A little bit awkward there on the honeymoon there after having the circumcision. But, you know, th- there was a, it was a transitional time. It was, we did this symbol, this ritual for a life transition, but that's not what Israel does, right? God says to do it in the text on the eighth day. After completing one cycle of creation, seven days, the baby boys are to be marked out to have a piece of them cut off 
symbolizing that they belong to God. They are set apart. Gordon Wenham says this, By day eight, they bear the mark on their body, reminding them that the covenant is a lifelong commitment. At day eight, you belong to the Lord. It's not some rite of passage down the road, but from the beginning of life, you belong to the Lord. He goes on, They bear the mark in their flesh as a sacred reminder of their mission. Our bodies, we don't talk about the body very much in church. And the body bears the sign that we are to what? What's the mission? It's a few verses we read last week. To walk blamelessly before God. Literally, in the body, whether it's the male born or it's the mommy watching her little boy being circumcised, the sign is to say we are to be set apart. We belong to the Lord. We are the people of God. It was a powerful, powerful symbol in that context. A reminder But God's people have been called to be set apart. That's true in the New Testament as well, right? You remember John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. And he says these words about the disciples and about us. He says, I have have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you that you take them out of the world, so we're in the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world sanctify them or set them apart it's connected to the word holy set them apart in the truth he goes on to say as for their sake i have been consecrated i have set myself aside so shall he says i have been set aside that they also might be sanctified or set apart in the truth israel was called in the middle of the nations to be set apart And they bore a sign in their body to remind them that they are set apart. And Jesus prays for us that we live in the culture, in the world, and we are to know that we are to be set apart. We are to be holy in the midst of this context. This is true in the Old, and we'll see in the New Testament. It was true for foreigners as well. Verse 12 and 13. Whether you were eight days old, or whether you, you were born in your house or you were bought with money from a foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. So we could talk about who these servants were and slavery and those kind of topics. But if you weren't uh, a child of one of the Israelites... You were came from the outside and brought in. You were to be circumcised, to be marked that says you are a part of this covenant community. Your body must bear the sign that you belong to this community. It's a serious, serious thing. Now, some of you think, well, that's Old Testament stuff. Uh, you may feel uncomfortable with this language of they were holy or they were set apart. I mean, they were eight days old. I mean, what kind of faith had they demonstrated? They hadn't done a whole lot. And yet they are called here, set apart or holy before the Lord. So we want to do this. We tend to do this when we hear this. Often people will say, well, let's make this Old Testament. God responded to them in one way. And then we'll be New Testament and God will respond to us in a different way. This holy language, set apart language is distinct. I'm not so sure it is. Let's look at this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Listen to this language, okay? This may be new for some of you. Um, just take it in, listen to this. This is speaking about a believing and unbelieving spouses that marry, okay? Just listen to the language and see if you can make the connection. 1 Corinthians 7, 
If any woman, he's speaking about a believing woman, has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, so the unbelieving husband consents to live with the believing wife, she shall not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife, if it were flipped, if the husband was a believer and the wife was an unbeliever, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, listen to this, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. This is Paul. This is New Testament. That's kind of, whoa, what's going on there? Children are holy because of their parents? What does he mean by that? First thought, it's interesting that God works and has always worked outside the family. God saves people whom he saves. God saves uh, the Apostle Paul uh, on the road to Damascus. God saves in a variety of ways. God saves the uh, person today who has no religious background on the streets of Boston or Sri Lanka or wherever it may be. But God does ordinarily work through family, through the covenant family as the faith is passed on from one generation to the next. But what does this mean? The unbelieving spouse is really holy or the children are holy. Does it mean that they are, uh, they are saved in the sense that we talk about salvation? You can say no. We can all rest easy. No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean they're saved. But it does mean that that spouse, that those children receive benefits and blessings for being a part of the covenant people of God. Christian, uh, they are not saved, but certainly privileged. That is undeniable. This is from the ESV Study Bible. Just listen to these words. So this is not um, some technical commentary. I'm not pulling some random uh, you know, Hebrew scholar. This is just a good study Bible we will all read, okay? Listen to what he says. The unbelieving spouse and children in a family with a believing spouse are not saved by this, this association. I just said that. Not saved. But they do come under... Uh, but they do come under the believing spouse's Christian influence, and so, Paul notes, they are much more likely to be saved in due course through their own faith. Thus, they are in a real sense set apart, which is the word holy, hagios, they are set apart from other unbelievers and from the evil of the world. Thus, the positive spiritual and moral influence of the believing parent outweighs the negative influence of the unbelieving parent Ben I don't know if that if you followed that this, this say this this pushes against everything we believe as western individualists right here this is like the crux this is the core I mean we're about expressive individual like we are about my way my faith journey my route to Jesus my quiet time my bible my time with god my church my right I mean, that, is so Im- that is so close to us. To think anyway, outside, is, it seems like heretical. And yet, the ancient world, and actually most of the world today, thinks in a much more corporate terms, and much more familial terms, the family terms. Uh, I read an article this week about, a, uh, about a, a, a village in Nepal where some of the deletes, the untouchables, it wasn't one conversion, it was like 20,000 converted all at one time. 
Now, was it just, you know, they all had individual repentance and faith and rejection? Yes, maybe so, but there was certainly a corporate connection between them. You hear this in Africa where the tribe may convert, and when, I mean, the chief of the tribe may convert, and when the chief converts, everyone converts, right? Because <laughs> the top converts, we better get in line, because why? We are connected to one another. Now, is faith individual? Yes. Is each person called to repent and believe the gospel? Yes. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But there is a corporate connection here that ties them together. It's an aspect of our faith. And here, the Old Testament, the sign was to symbolize for the baby that you belong to this community, that you have been set apart with privileges and benefits of hearing the word, of being a part of God's people. And it's to symbolize that. I'll say more in just a second. So circumcision, first of all, is a powerful symbol that God brings life and that God's people, all of us, whether we're uh, believers as adults or born into the household of faith, are to be set apart from the world. Second question here. Does circumcision guarantee faith in God? Does circumcision guarantee salvation Quick answer, no, it does not. Um, it doesn't explicitly say that here in this text, but we read in chapter 15, how was Abraham made righteous? Do you remember? He was made righteous by faith. He believed by faith. Not by an outward sign, but by faith, and he was declared righteous. He was justified. So we're, we're on the same page. Old Testament made righteous by faith. New Testament made righteous by faith. There is continuity in those two. But, are those children, the circumcised children, are they privileged to believe, to be in that home of, a, of, of the household of faith? Were the children of Israel different from the Philistines? Children. Yeah, or those from Egypt. Were they? Or those that were worshiping Baal, right? Or uh, the, the gods on the high places. Or If you were raised in Israel, you had what? You had the law. You had the temple. You had the people of God. You had generations pouring into you. There are privileges given and associated with that. They are not saved by these outward signs. It is by faith, by faith that we are saved. It is by faith. That is true of them. They were privileged, and yet faith was the requirement. Still is the requirement. Listen to Jeremiah 4.4. The prophet says this. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Let, them, let my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. He's talking to Israel and they know this concept of circumcision. They know there's a cutting off of the flesh. You know this concept. This is what I've been asking you to do. But it's not just in the body. Actually, your hearts... Your hearts have to do the same thing. There's a cutting away of the sin and the flesh is to be removed. He uses the sign that he gave them in their body to do in their very hearts. He didn't say get rid of circumcision. He says not just the flesh, but the heart. The same thing in Deuteronomy 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, as long as you live. So circumcision brought them into a privileged community 
But the community is called to live by faith as you and I are. Um, outward signs are helpful. Um, uh, that's why we have the Lord's Supper. It's an outward sign. We're not saved by communion, right? I hope you don't think that. But it's a sign to help us. I'll explain a little bit more in a second. Finally, third question. Um, is circumcision, is it commanded in the Old Testament? And what about the New Testament? Was it commanded in the Old Testament? Absolutely was commanded. In fact, verse 14 says this. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So it wasn't something like optional. Like, hey, if you feel like this is a good practice, like this is kind of what we're doing as the community. If you don't cut off something on your body saying that you are cut off from the world, then you will be cut off from God. It's equivalent to the New Testament uh, excommunication. You will be separate. You'll be pushed out of the community if you are not marked with the sign in your body that you belong to this community. It symbolized a hardening of heart, a refusal to surrender to the Lord. It is serious business. Is circumcision required today in the New Testament? Is it required? No, it's not required, right? It's not required. Is there an equivalent? Is there a sign in the New Testament that we equate to circumcision? I believe there is. I believe that is baptism. In the baptism, throughout the New Testament, throughout the early church, throughout the history of the church, Christians have baptized, been baptized, right? As initiation rite that have been brought into the household of faith. It is a way of marking you out to say, I belong to the people of God. It's a picture of cleansing, a picture of what Christ has done. Jesus' last words, Matthew 28. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 38. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls. He says, Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's with Jews, with Gentiles. That's you and I. He says it again in chapter 10. After they received Christ, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. 1 Peter 3, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, strong language, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is he saying baptism saves in the way we talk about saved? No, it's salvation by grace through faith. But this baptism is a picture, it's a sign for us pointing to our connection to the resurrected Jesus. So as we see the sign, we say, oh, he's connected to Jesus. Baptism points to Jesus and Jesus saves. And so we're commanded to be baptized. You know, we don't, in our circles, talk about this a whole lot. Um, we don't talk about baptism and the necessity of it. One of the reasons we don't is we're so afraid of legalism, right? Um, and so I'm going to try to make this brief, but um, there's both an objective side of faith and there's a subjective side, objective and subjective. You know, you know those terms? Um, we, uh, we don't like traditions that make it all about the rote and the ritual, right? It's all about the practices. It seems to become like a check-the-box. If I got baptized, if I take the Lord's Supper, if I go through the class, if I go to church, if I do the confession, if I do whatever it is. So we said, that's not good. Let's, let's stay away from that. That's, that's the objective, like actual things we do. 
And we prefer that today in our world much more of the subjective, right? It's my relationship with God. It's uh, connecting to the Spirit. It's worship songs. It's emotion. It's connection. It's, uh, it's, it's a good personal aspect. That is a very, very, very good thing. Don't you hear me say that? But somewhere along the line, we've, we create this false dichotomy. It's not this, it's this. And in some circles, we say, oh, not that soupy, me, spirituality, Jesus is my homeboy kind of stuff. We need some like concrete things that we do, right? We need the objective side. And so we make them an either or. But the reality of, throughout history, the signs that Jesus gave were to go, look over there, look over there. There's signs in the body, we're going to eat bread. Baptism, we're going to see water poured out to say it's a sign. Sign is not the thing. A sign points to the thing. It points to the cleansing of Christ, the work of Christ, the washing of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ. The bread symbolizes his body broken. Is this his body? No. But it points us as we eat it to the body broken and the blood shed for us. Real, tangible signs. So let's don't do away with the signs. Let's just embrace them by faith as they point us to Jesus. Does that make sense? Objective is not bad. It's good. It's meant to be embraced by faith as it points us to a growing relationship with Jesus. They are to be married together. Often we demonize this as a knee-jerk reaction because we're afraid of legalism. We've actually missed a beautiful thing God's given us. Does baptism save? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But we are commanded to do it. So if you are, if you are an adult today and you've come to faith, you should be baptized if you haven't been. You should be baptized. Uh, if we don't, uh, we are in disobedience, Scripture would say. teaches. Jesus says, go and be baptized. This is not a light matter. It doesn't save us, um, but it certainly points us to the work of Christ. Final thought. As uh, connecting to circumcision, some of you won't be- don't believe this, won't hold this, and that's okay. This is an ongoing conversation. I'm open to have this conversation. Uh, we have probably half people in this room that do, half that don't. That's fine. We believe that we baptize adults that come to faith in Christ, and we also believe that we baptize children of believing homes. As we read in 1 Corinthians 7, it seems unmistakable that they are somehow holy by relationship to believing parent. Are they saved? No. Are they set aside and set apart? Yes, they are. And we believe Scripture teaches a connection between baptism and circumcision. As circumcised children were part of the community, so baptized children are raised in the community. And our prayer is that they would grow up into the faith. I love this prayer. I use it sometimes when I do uh, infant baptism. And just listen to these words and see if you can make the connection between one whole view of Scripture... Uh, the role of the sacrament, but also the role of the church. This is from the French Reformed Church, 1955. Listen to these words. So the minister prays something like this. Blessed child of the covenant, for you God made the world. For you the prophets and the patriarchs were sent. For you the covenants and promises were given. For you God's revelation was written down. For you our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ became a man, lived a perfect life, died upon the cross, and was raised again for your salvation. Listen to this. You cannot possibly know these things now. It's an infant, right? But we, your church, promise to tell them to you until you make them your own. Do you hear that? Boy, that is a robust view of the church. That little eight-day-old boy being circumcised, he had no idea what was going on. (laughs) 
But Israel's job, and the prophets reminded them throughout their history, our job as Israel, as the people of God, is to tell him over and over, God is a promise-keeping God. He is faithful. In fact, your body bears the mark. As the people of God, are our children safe? No. But our job is to point them throughout their life to say God is a covenant-keeping God. This picture of water covering and baptism, if you notice, it's a very passive act. Whatever mode you believe in, you're passive. You are baptized. It happens to you. God cleanses you. It is a picture of cleansing. So we see that sign. As you see the sign, it is as much for the audience as it is for the person baptized to say, this is what God has done on our behalf. And so we believe those children should be baptized. Um, do we die on that hill? We do not. I'd love to have that conversation. Open to disagreement. Have great friends uh, that disagree, and that is fine. Um, but as we talk about circumcision, it's hard not to make that connection and try to explain that. Even if you don't agree, I hope you understand it better. I hope you have que- if you have questions, please ask that. Regardless of our view of, of infant baptism, we are commanded in Scripture as an act of faith, not outside of faith, but as an act of faith to be baptized, symbolizing a picture, not just for the person being baptized, but for all of us to say, our God cleanses us of sin through Jesus and through his work. It's my encouragement to us to be baptized. The whole chapter revolves around the sign, but the sign is not a sign without faith. It is not something done as just a rote practice, as a ritual that's going to commend us to God. But We do the signs. We do both the Lord's Supper and baptism as an act of faith, trusting that God is the one who has done the work. He has merited salvation for us. And so we respond by faith. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this time together. A lot of content, a lot to talk about. Uh, probably some confusion, but I pray what would stick is that uh, we are made for you. Our bodies are actually made for you. Our whole being is made for you. We are to live before you by faith. And Lord, you are gracious to give us signs uh, to, uh, to condescend to our weakness. To give us object lessons so that we can actually see what you have done for us in Jesus. May we know it and may we embrace that even today by faith, we pray in your name. Amen. Would you please stand as we respond by faith and take up uh, the offering together?